0: Welcome to another episode of the Christian Kabatomist Podcast. I am your host and servant in Jesus Christ, Paladin Actual. This is your midweek-ish episode in which I have my sermon at the end, uh, and I talk about the things that kind of went into the sermon, the things that didn't make it into the sermon, uh, a little bit of analysis on the text based on commentaries that I've read, podcasts I've listened to, and Bible that I have studied. So with that, let's get right into it. The gospel reading uh, that the sermon was based off this week is Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. I also kind of base it off of 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. Both of them had to do with resurrection of an only begotten son from a widow. Um, But I'm just going to read Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. I'll get into a couple of the details about the, the section and then... Um, then you can listen to the sermon if you want to, or you can tune it out entirely. Your choice. All right. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Um, Here we go. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died and was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And said to her, "Do not weep." Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, "Young man, I say to you, arise." And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear the seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, "A great prophet has arang- risen among us, and God has visited His people." And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Um, so, first and foremost, this is a this is a a resurrection text. This is one of. Uh, multiple resurrections happen in the new testament and of course it's paired with a resurrection text in the Old Testament elijah raising the the son of the widow there's also another text in the Old Testament that I often get confused and mixed up with which is elisha raising the son of i believe a widow as well so and it's very similar it's a very similar account of, of the raising of the dead now for this sermon um so last week's sermon that I didn't do <laughs> an episode like this for. Uh, last week's sermon was, was shorter than normal. This week's sermon was a little bit longer than normal. And as I was reading through this text, uh, there was actually a topic that I had, I had been intending to make a snarky video about for a while. There was something like, um, what was it was called, it was like five things you should never say at a funeral, <laughs> which, uh, might, I might still make as a standalone video. Uh, let me see if I can find it. But as I was going through this thing, uh, and as I was looking at the uh, looking at the text and the resurrection this this is one of the one of the ideas that jumped out in my mind so i'd already actually started writing this sermon i want to say months and months ago originally my idea when writing the sermon was was going to be based on this so uh verse 13 when the lord saw her he had compassion on her i don't have to look it up but i think that's the splagnizzo my word uh, his guts were churned and he said to her do not weep a better translation for that is do not persist in weeping, stop continuing Stop continuing to weep, uh, it, it, as in you have been crying, but now it's time to stop crying. Now, originally my intent for the sermon, what I was originally going to do was I was going to get into kind of uh, two, two errors you can fall into in mourning. One of them is to never cease mourning and to despair. And your grief is a good thing, but it, it can lead you to despair and to lose hope. And that's a bad thing. The other, the other danger that I wanted to warn against in the sermon originally was the danger of trying to avoid grief altogether. And the example I use is, you know, Jesus wept. Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. Death is not a good thing. This is something that I emphasize very heavily in the sermon, that death is not a good thing. It's not appropriate. It's, it's, it's not something that we need to just shrug off and say, oh, it happens. It, it's a bad thing. It's something that God hates. God hates death, particularly the death of the saints. But... So these were the, this was originally my idea for the sermon. The before, you know, I got sidetracked with my three things never to say at a funeral. Originally I thought, okay, well, I'm going to make a sermon about, you know, this do not weep concept because again, it's a very powerful phrase that Jesus is using here. It's not just don't weep. It's cease your weeping. Cease your weeping. And you, if you think, okay, well, that sounds heartless. Well, Jesus raises her son from the dead immediately afterwards. What reason does she have to continue to weep? Now, it was appropriate that she was grieving the death of her son, but God is taking care of it, so it's it's appropriate to stop mourning. And this is a this is a concept that is difficult to preach. It is difficult to tell somebody that there's a time for mourning and there's a time to stop mourning too. There there is there is a moment where grief and lament can overwhelm you, where it is sinful to continue to indulge in these things. And it's really hard to say to somebody, hey, uh, you know, you are grieving something bad that happened, but you have lapsed into sin. I mean, how, how how exactly do you approach somebody and tell them you're, you know, you're mourning too much, you're lamenting too long, especially since there isn't sort of like a set, you know, time frame or whatever. Now, there's some interesting examples in the Bible of mourning and lament. I think about uh, David. So David commits adultery and murder um, uh, with his his, well, she becomes his wife Bathsheba, and he has his son. Taken away from him as a punishment for this. And he's weeping and he's mourning and he's grieving before the death of his son. And and like he's not eating and he's so distraught. And the the other people in the in the in the castle basically say, you know, I don't want to approach David and let him know that King David and let him know that his son has has died. Because if he's mourning this much before his son has died, how much more will he mourn afterwards? And a strange thing happens. They come up to David and they eventually say, okay, you know, your son has... Well, actually, they don't come up to David. David sees them, if I remember right. David sees them and and asks them, you know, what they're talking about and says, you know, has my son died? And they say, yes. And then he immediately stops mourning and he starts eating. Not that he's, you know, jumping for joy, but, the, you know, he says, I was mourning and grieving that the Lord may may relent, but but now I'll know that, you know, now that my son is in heaven, I will go and see him. He'll not come back to me, but I'll go and see him. And, you know, David is talking about this. Uh, Uh, You know, he's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about going to heaven, that sort of thing. He knows that his his child is in heaven, but with this, I mean, so it's that was. I don't know if that's a unique situation. I suppose that's a unique situation because David knew that his son was going to be taken away from him. But there is this concept in the Bible that we do have to be aware of when our grief and our mourning and our lamenting turns into despair and lack of faith, or when it even becomes. A distraction from you know from our duties. This is one of the things that I've dealt with in the military before, uh, and not just myself, but other people I know have dealt with this. And military members know very well that they're going to have to deal with this at some point. If they're if they're in any sort of hard job, sometimes you know there's explosions going off, there's all kinds of crazy things happening, and you have to comp, comp- excuse me, you have to compartmentalize. If you know there's all these crazy crazy things going down and they will affect you emotionally. Your best buddy just got blown up in a roadside attack or something like that. Sometimes you have to put that in a little box in your mind and put it to the side because right now you have to focus on finishing your mission. You have to focus on getting the rest of your guys home safe. And And you can grieve and you can mourn and you should when it's appropriate. So Grieving, mourning, and lamenting should never—this is one of the takeaways, I guess, I got from studying this text—is that grieving, mourning, and lamenting should never be a process where you just—you throw your willpower out the window, where it's completely un- unrestrained, where it's, you know, where where it's completely unintentional, where you just—you give yourself over to your emotions entirely. Grieving, uh, lamenting, and mourning, these are appropriate things for death. Death is a bad thing. We should grieve when somebody dies. But at the same time we shouldn't lose control we should be aware of what's going on. There is a point to to cease to cease weeping. And that's really hard to say and it's even harder to hear than it is to say. But there is a point where you need to stop you need to stop the grief. Well, the grief may continue, but you need to stop focusing solely on the grief and you need to do other things anybody who has any sort of primary responsibility, say you're a husband or a wife or a father or mother or something like that, uh, and something horrible and tragic happen, something horrible or tragic happens, and you still have a responsibility to take care of your kids. So you have to grieve, yes, but at the same time, you can't let that it doesn't remove you from the other responsibilities you have in your life. It's really hard because a lot of times when we want to grieve, we want somebody to just take all of all of the other problems away from us so we can just focus on getting through this one this one ordeal. And the reality is that that's not biblical. It, it's not biblical that you are you know allowed to abandon all your responsibilities because you're 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 grieving. Sometimes the hardest time to grieve is you've got when you've got other things to do. But then sometimes having other things to do as well helps you through that grieving process because you're realizing that while your grief seems persistent and consistent, these other responsibilities that you have are 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 progressing. You're doing something. You're continuing to take your kids to school, to feed them, to, you know, to take care of them that sort of thing. They're continuing to grow even though you feel like you're stuck in your grief. You are engaged in, you know, other activities that is that, that are progressing. Progressing forward. Anyways, the whole there's a lot of wisdom to be learned uh, in in death and grief and mourning, and particularly for those uh, who have lost who have lost Christian loved ones, because you know, in addition to grief, we've also got the joy of the resurrection. We've got the joy of eternal life. Oftentimes, Christians talk about going from the church militant to the church triumphant. Church militant is where you're on the earth and you're struggling as a Christian. There's powers and principalities and everything against you. And church triumphant is you are resting. You are resting from from the work and you're resting in the presence of of God. Uh, and this is it is a joy that somebody is now free from free from pain and free from suffering, et cetera. But it's also you know it's also really sad that we that we miss somebody that you know we lose somebody that we love. Uh, and of course you know grieving mourning. These sort of lamenting, these sort of things don't have to necessarily be with death, but death is probably the easiest the easiest example to point to of, of look, somebody you love dies. Um, how should you respond to that? How long should you respond to that? Okay, let's see. What else do we have here? All right, so, um, yeah, so uh, in First Kings 17, there's uh, the resurrection of the son. Um, in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 and following, you have... Yeah, so there's this phrase "Do not weep" is important. Um, the other one is Jesus has compassion on her. This um, I, again, I, mean, I suppose I should look it up. I don't remember if I looked it up beforehand or not. I probably should have. If I didn't, oh, bad, bad, bad paladin. You're supposed to look up all the Greek. Okay, let me see Luke. Uh, so I, I'm pretty, pretty certain about this, but I just I want to be a hundred percent sure that I'm getting the right, the right word for this because if it is, it's it's one of the most important words. It's one of the most important Greek words in in the Bible that you that you need to know. There's a lot of things indicated to it. Okay, oh, see, uh, verse thirteen. When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. Let's look at the let's look at the Greek interlinear. Yes, yes, I was right. Of course, I was right because this is that word, nits thee. This is um, uh, what a cognate I think it's called of splenitsumai. Now, it, one of my the oldest videos on my channel is about this word splenitsumai, and you think about it, you've got the splenic vessel. It means to be moved in the inner in the inward parts. Um, it's often translated to feel compassion, and that is not good enough. <laughs> it is it is not just he, Jesus sees him sees this woman and feels compassion on her, but his guts are churned. It is a physical, gut-wrenching sensation of, of, of you know compassion that he feels towards this person. This word is used in parables and uh, in descriptions of God, parables that describe God. Um, I believe the—I think it's the parable of the unrighteous steward or something like that, where the master sees the steward who owes him so much money, and he has compassion on him. And we translate that to has compassion, but again, it's a much stronger, much more visceral. And I like the word visceral here because it literally means visceral. Your viscera, um, a visceral word to your guts are churned because you feel so much compassion for a person. You have a physical reaction to feeling compassion for a person. Um, so this is so he has compassion on her um, because she's lost her own, her only son. Um, one of the one of the probably goddesses or something like that that I was listening to. They talk about this translation of uh, they carrying out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And he said, I believe he said that it would have been better if they translated this the only begotten son, the only begotten son, and, and kind of connect this with um, with with the widow. This was another direction that I kind of went in at the end of the sermon, but I could have structured the entire sermon around is this comparison between the the death of the, the only begotten son. Uh, excuse me, the death of the only begotten son in the Old Testament, death of the only begotten son here with the widow, and the death of the only begotten son uh, of Jesus on the cross. With presumably Mary, who is presumably a widow, a lot of times we assume that she's she's a widow at that point because Joseph isn't mentioned uh, during Jesus' adult life. We assume that he died, that's why he's not mentioned. So, the only begotten son of a widow. Um, and, and in these cases, all of these cases, there's grief and there's mourning because of the death of this son, um and the and the son is obviously a gift from god and then god raises the son uh, another direction to take this is that this son uh, this son died and was raised again and jesus died so that this son could be raised again um, so so you could have jesus taking the place of this son you know the son dies and jesus brings him back and then jesus dies in his in his place uh, and returns so that that's an interesting direction you, i could have taken the sermon but i didn't this is this is one of the things about writing sermons, is a lot of times you'll get into text and you'll have you'll have like half ideas. You'll you'll get you're like oh man that'd be a great idea, but how do I land that plane? How do I bring that point home? Or is that enough to structure an entire sermon around? Other times you'll get into a sermon and you'll have so many ideas. That you just, you have to limit yourself. There's like so many different ways that you can go with a lot of these texts, and and you have to you have to pick a lane because if you talk about too many things at once, if you try to have the listeners juggle too many concepts at the same time, they're not going to grasp any of them. But you can maybe have them grasp like one to three possibly. But you have to you have to do it you have to do it in an appropriate way. Um, you have to give them these things to to kind of to kind of chew on and and and, and digest. Before you put more food and spiritual food in their mouth, uh, let them chew first. All right. Uh, let me see. Lord Caesar has compassion on him. Do not weep. That phrase, we talked about that already. He came up and he touched the beers and the bearer stood still. So, this is uh, <laughs> somebody else pointed this out um, that that the uh, that pall bearers are basically like background. Car- like, they don't even say anything. Jesus walks up and he, and he touches the beer that they're carrying this guy on and they just stop. You know, he doesn't talk to them. He doesn't regard them at all. They just, they're just there. They're, they're pieces of furniture. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. Ah, here's another thing that I could have gotten the entire sermon around. Um, this concept of speaking to dead people. <laughs> rather God speaking to dead people and the effect of his word. Think about it also. Think about it uh, when he when he hears the deaf man. And he says, which means be opened. He speaks words to a deaf man. Now a deaf man can't hear his words. So it's not like the deaf man heard his words and obeyed. And in this case, it's not like the dead man naturally heard the words and obeyed, but rather the words themselves are effective. So when God says be opened, the ears are open. And when he says to the body, get up, I say to you, arise, it gets up and it arises. So this isn't this isn't cooperation in the sense of, you know, I don't know, in, in, in the sense of of, you know, this person has the capacity to cooperate and he just needs to be guided in the right direction or whatever. And Jesus gives him good advice, like, hey, stop being dead. And the guy's like, oh, okay, yeah, I hear you. I guess I'll stop being dead. But no, this is um. I mean, and this is constant throughout Scripture. This effective power of God's word. God declares, and things happen. Let there be light, and there is light. He doesn't say, "Hey, could you guys uh please turn the light on?" I know that the light is already here, but could you please make it functional? No, he says, "Let there be," and there is. He says, "I say to you, arise," and they arise. He says, "Be opened," and it is opened. Uh, when God speaks, things happen, and and He declares. And there's other there's other times when he when he does healing and, and stuff like that, where there's a more more of a physical interaction too. Um, you know, laying hands on people or, you know, touching their tongue or things like that. In this case, he speaks. In other cases, he doesn't even speak to the person. He just says, you know, go home. Your daughter is, you know, well, or whatever your servant is well, that, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. This is an interesting phrase for me. The dead man began to it sat up and began to speak. Now, I mean, the obviously the obvious translation would be and the man who was dead is now alive and sits up and begins to speak. The other way to look at this is that as still a corpse, the corpse arises begins to speak. So God gives life to the corpse. Ah, there's not really that much to pull out of it. It's just an interesting sort of way to phrase it. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Well, that's nice. So Jesus has compassion on the mother and cures the cause of the mother's grief and gives it so it's not like he sees the mother has a you know has compassion on her and then moves on to this young man has compassion on him but rather he he recognizes the grief and the mourning of the person who's lost the loved one and he comforts he comforts the grieving he comforts the person who is grieving the mother needs more help than the son does if the son dies and is in, in heaven Really, he doesn't need help. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest here. He he is no longer suffering or or anything like that. But the mother is suffering. So Jesus sees compassion on this suffering mother, and he cures not only the death of the man, but he cures the compassion or the uh, the suffering of the mother. So he doesn't lose focus on the person who is grieving. Uh, so and a lot of times let's, let's again, take this to another sort of practical example. So let's say, for example, you've got a loved one, and you have been praying for healing for this loved one, and they're in the hospital, and then they're in hospice. And I, I know how it goes. I, I know how it goes from personal experience, and, and many of the people I talk to, they go through this pattern where they're just praying, they're praying, they're praying for healing for this person, and, and the person is declining in health, and then the person eventually dies. Um, and, and thanks be to God, if they're a Christian, they 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 go to heaven then. And a lot of times it feels like that's That's it. That's the end of it. That's, you know, there's nothing more to pray for. You know, the person is already, the person has already departed. They're, you know, they're in heaven now. There's nothing more to pray for. But God doesn't just care about the person who's sick. God doesn't care, doesn't just care about the person who dies, but he cares also about the person who's left behind, the people who are left behind and grieving their loved ones. He cares about these people. So this is an excellent example of this. He cares about this this widow. He cares about her so much that. That, that, that what he does he specifically tailors to giving her comfort he gives her back her son he began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother he he gives he gives her back her son and this is wonderful for her I assume that at this point she stopped grieving i I can't even imagine the kind of um the kind of celebration and stuff you know for you've got a son he was dead now he's alive and then, okay, look at the reaction of the other people. Verse sixteen, fear sees them all, and they glorified, they glorified God, saying, "A great prophet has has arisen among us." Now, um, this is there's there, there's phrases in scripture where like people are right, but they're not as right as they could be. Um, I, I get this from the pigeon Hawaiian pigeon translation. The word prophet means a person who talks for God. True. And God is obviously the ultimate prophet because He speaks for Himself. But anybody who talks for God, anybody who who speaks God' God's word as a prophet, uh, there's a specific office of prophet that no longer longer exists um, that God had in the Old Testament that He used. Uh, and then it's a you know Hebrews one chapter one or chapter one verses one and two. In many and various ways, God spoke to people of old by His prophets. But now in these last days, He's spoken to us by Jesus Christ, His Son. Um, Jesus is is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophet because who can speak for God better than God? So yes, it's true. Jesus is the prophet, but they probably don't mean it that way. I would expect them to mean it in such a way that they might mean it as calling Jesus a rabbi or a good teacher or something like that. Like, you know, he's a he's a he's a great, he's a great man, but not necessarily God himself. And here's this this other one. Um uh, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. So and this is I mean this is true as well God has visited his his people. So they're they're admitting that this is the work of God that this person is that this man has come back to life. Are they specifically confessing that Jesus is God? I don't know. Maybe. Um I could see I could see it not being that confession. Uh I Maybe that's my my pessimism, but it's 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 one of these lines in the Bible where it's true, but not necessarily in the way—it's true more than the people realize that it's true. Jesus is the final prophet, the great prophet. Yes, this is true. God has visited his people, Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, this is absolutely true, and it's Jesus. Um, yeah, so I— it's funny. These are, these are some of those phrases, like, who is it? Is it Caiaphas or somebody else who says that it's better for one man to die for all of the people or something like that? You know, the needs of the, 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 many away the needs of the one or something like, yeah. Like Caiaphas says this phrase that is more true, that is more true than he realizes. The people say the phrase, his blood be on us and on our children. They have no idea what they're saying. Like they think they're saying a thing, but what they're saying is more true than they realize. So this is one of those things where I look at these phrases in the Bible and think, well, you know, God recorded this for a reason. Like it's so funny looking back at some of these and saying, Yeah, that's more right than they <laughs> than they than they grasp at the time. All right, and then verse 17, in this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So, you know, everybody's everybody's talking about him. Um yeah, and, and then this happen. This happens a lot of times with a lot of the miracles. Is is kind of people start hearing about the miracles, and then you know people start running up and, and recognizing Jesus and stuff. I think the lepers, for example, uh, the ten lepers. I think they recognized Jesus because they didn't just say, you know, Lord have mercy, as you might uh, as a beggar, but they specifically called him out by name. Anyways, there's a bunch of different ways that you could take you could take this text. Um, this was this was an interesting sermon writing experience. So there are sometimes when I write sermons and I'm like, man, this sermon is a banger. Then I preach it, I'm like, that was miserable. In fact, that's that's usually what happens. The worse I think a sermon is before I preach it, the better it feels after I have preached it. Sometimes. And, and So this was one of these sermons where I was like, ah, yeah, I've got you know five things. Let, let me look up my to do list. Uh, I, that's the name of my document. Um, is that like five things to never say at a, a funeral was the thing that I that I listed down. Yeah, five things I never say at a funeral I had. Heaven gained an angel. She's looking down on us uh, regarding an unbeliever. They're in a better place. I didn't get into that. Um, death is a natural part of life, and this is a celebration of, of life referring to their past life. And in the sermon, I pared that down to, to three of them. I pared it down to, to three statements. Heaven gained an angel, and my statement was basically that no, what happened to your loved one is better than an angel. They're a child of God. Angels are not. Um... The next one is uh, death is a natural part of life I said no death is the enemy of, of of life death is an enemy of the author of life and death is an enemy that is defeated. We don't need to just accept death as a you know as, as something we have to deal with we can treat death as the enemy that it is um, uh, because we know that Christ conquers that enemy and then finally the celebration of life thing I said you can celebrate the person's life but uh, you should be celebrating their eternal life and heaven even more because it's better than whatever they. Experience on the earth. Anyways, these were kind of the things that I that I went into. So I thought, you know, oh man, I got such a great sermon. Then I preached the sermon, and as I'm preaching the sermon, I'm like, man, I am not doing a good job. (laughs) This was one of the sermons. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice or not. This is one of the sermons as as I was preaching. I was like, man, this is not. I wish I had done a better sermon. Then when I finished the sermon, I was like, well, I'm glad that I had that done. I I'm pretty sure that I preached Christ crucified, the forgiveness of sins. That's the most important part. Um, I imagine I stumbled quite a few times and got got in the way of the essentials, uh, and and I wish that I had. So this was one of the sermons that I that I preached, and I was like, I did not feel good about it. Uh, we go through, we do communion and, and things like that, and then afterwards, uh, I'm talking to people after the service, and as inevitably happens, whenever I think I've preached like one of the worst sermons, somebody comes up to me, and for one reason or another, that, that sermon particularly spoke something to them, or it was you know it's an issue that they were dealing with, or something like that. Uh, and and uh, and and there's three different three different people who who essentially said this thing to me, and I didn't realize that the sermon was so. For me, I haven't had a direct loved one die um, for about a year, uh, so for me, the concept of, of of a funeral was not something that was that was really fresh uh, fresh in my mind. I wrote the sermon, and then probably about halfway through the week, I about finished the sermon. It takes me a while to write it. And then I, I tweak it from time to time afterwards. And then after that point, there were different members of the congregation who each kind of struggled with the death of the family or a death of a loved one or a death of a friend. And and to them, this sermon was what, apparently, was what they, they, they needed to hear. For me, this sermon wasn't particularly, I felt like it wasn't particularly relevant. I felt like it wasn't a particularly good job. For these people, hearing the, this comfort of the eternal life and the forgiveness of Christ and that their loved one is now in heaven— was specifically relevant to them, which just goes to show you that that preaching and, and coming up with a sermon, homiletics and stuff like that, it's not the brilliance of the pastor. I'm not trying to. I I do not take credit for any good stuff that ends up in the sermon because any good stuff that ends up in the sermon is good because it came from God. All I can do is not get in the way, like <laughs> get in the way as little as possible of God's message of of repentance and salvation. Um, so, and, and this is, it's constantly a humbling experience, because as brilliant as I think I am, I come up with some, some utter trash sermon, and as much as I write a trash sermon, God uses that for purposes I never could have fulfilled if I was specifically trying to fulfill those needs. So, I mean, one of my favorite phrases is soli Deo Gloria, uh, to God alone be the glory, and this is absolutely true writing, and this is one of the reasons why I don't think that writing sermons can be replaced with with AI, like ChatGPT. You could write a fairly functional sermon, but the Holy Spirit works not just in the writing of the sermon, not just in the preaching of the sermon, but also in the hearing of the sermon, and through the Bible that is read hopefully before and, dur- and during the sermon. So again, it's a really humbling experience to realize that I'm doing God's work, but any good work that is done is him working through me, not anything that I can take credit for. But thanks be to God that I get to participate and and get a front row seat to some of these wonderful things that he does uh, to to comfort his believers. Thank you know God is just great. <laughs> He's just great. It's it's so fantastic. Anyways, uh, if you'd like to keep listening, what follows next, um, colloquially named the sermon, is is three things you should never say at a funeral. But the better title for the sermon that that came after I preached the sermon. I changed the title of the sermon. The final title, let me get I've got it written down here. The final title the title of the sermon is The life of a Christian never truly ends. It is Trinity 17 of the historic one year lectionary. The readings are Psalm 30, 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24. Excuse me. Ephesians 3 13 through 21 and Luke 7 verses 11 through 17. God bless you all. Enjoy and take care. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you, from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text for the sermon this morning is from the Gospel reading, which you've just heard, as well as the Old Testament reading. Now, both in the Old Testament and the Gospel reading, we have accounts of God bringing back to life the children of widows. In both of these cases, as is appropriate, the mother is grieving the loss of her loved one. So to anyone who's lost a husband or wife, son, daughter, niece, nephew, friend... You know firsthand that the suffering, you know firsthand the suffering that death causes. You know firsthand the grief that it causes to everyone around the loved one. Whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, it still hurts to be without them. Sometimes people try to avoid grieving. They try to avoid mourning entirely. Some say things like, if I die, I don't want you to be sad. I want you to have a party instead. Now it's certainly tempting to sidestep the grief of death, it isn't necessarily appropriate. We are supposed to regard death as a bad thing. When someone dies it's good to grieve because death is not okay. Death is not acceptable. Death is not what God had in mind for you or your loved ones. God is the author of life and though he has used death for good, like the death of Christ on the cross, death itself is evil. It is the result of evil. It is a result of sin. Death is the unnatural separation of body and soul as a result of sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. So it is entirely appropriate and you don't need to feel bad to mourn the loss of a loved one. The shortest verse in the English Bible, does anybody know what it is? Two words. Jesus wept. Why was he weeping? Do you remember the event that caused him to weep? The death of Lazarus. Lazarus his friend This is talked about other places in scripture Lazarus is his friend Lazarus is uh, he's the brother of Mary and Martha He's somehow related to them But Jesus weeps at the death of Lazarus Even though verses later He'll bring him back to life So Jesus, God, the author of life The one who raises him from the dead Even he looks at death and weeps He looks and feels sorrow Even Jesus, true God and true man Wept when his friend died If Jesus is man enough to cry when his friend dies, you certainly have permission to do the same. Now on one side, the temptation is to avoid grief entirely. To say, I don't want to deal with the grief. Grief hurts. I'd rather just not deal with it entirely. The other side is to be entirely consumed by grief. To let that grief define you. To let that grief be the only thing that you see to cloud out everything else. Grief, lament, and mourning can absolutely be appropriate. But it is also sinful to lose hope, to become so buried in your own sadness that you forget that God is still doing good things in your life. As a pastor, as a chaplain, I have more experience with death than most people. This is something that didn't dawn on me, but I've been to more funerals than most people will in their entire life. I've only been a pastor a few years. Some of these funerals, some of these, are the death of people that I know very well. And people that I love and know dearly sometimes there are people that I don't know that well sometimes pastors do funerals for people that he's only that they've only talked to once or twice funerals are very sensitive times because there's so many people involved oftentimes many of them aren't Christian it's difficult to do a sermon for a funeral when you're talking about the death and the resurrection of Christ and half the congregation or half the not the congregation half of the people who show up have nothing to do with Christianity it can be a challenge. They're grieving in their own unique ways and their own unique times. Unfortunately, unfortunately, funerals also tend to be times when questionable theology and Christian practices tend to come out the most. For the people involved, they want to do what's best. They want to honor the legacy of their loved ones. They're trying to act with good intentions, but they don't always do it in the best way. Now, our American culture Tends to give, tends to try to give people comfort for their grief, but it doesn't do it as well as the Bible does. There's, you know, there's secular condolence cards that you can get from Hallmark, but I think the Bible does it better. The point is that the person can have so much more comfort than they're getting from from society. When I go to a funeral and somebody is being comforted in a secular way, and I want to just tell them, you know, God has a better plan. What God has for you is much better. But since there's not a funeral today, and I don't risk being quite so insensitive, here are three common things said at funerals which are not as good as God's promise. The first thing is this, heaven gained an angel today. Heaven gained an angel today. I've heard this a few times at funerals. The good-hearted intent is to reassure a family member that your loved one is with God. They're in heaven now and they've been given a special place. Someone might even assign the role of a guardian angel to a loved one. If your mother or your father passes away, you may have heard somebody tell you that they're looking out for you now. You have a guardian angel in your mother. That they're now one of your guardian angels. It sounds comforting, but the truth is so much better. The truth is so much better than that. So we Christians, we often misunderstand angels. We know that they're majestic, they're holy and spiritual beings. This is absolutely true. But their job is mostly to be a messenger. That's what the word angel means. It means messenger. God doesn't turn people into angels, but rather he made people better than angels. God made you in his own image. This is never said about angels, that angels are made in God's image. God took on human form. Human, not angel form. Human form to die on a cross for your sins. He never became one of the angels for their sake. God loves you, a Christian so much that he came down to earth to bring you up to heaven to bring your loved ones up to heaven as sons and daughters of the father your loved one in heaven is not an angel they're not a messenger or a servant of god in that way but they're a brother or a sister of christ they're a child of god they're part of the family not part of the wait staff part of the family of the king of kings they are now royalty in heaven This is infinitely better than getting a halo and and wings and a harp and sitting on a cloud eating Philadelphia cream cheese or even becoming a guardian angel. What God has given your loved one is so much better than being an angel. Your mother or father is now resting in the presence of God to be loved by him for all eternity. Being an angel would be a step down from that. The second incorrect statement that is often said at funerals is this. Death is a natural part of life. Usually the implied part after that is, so get over it. (laughs) Death is a natural part of life. This is a hard one to bite my tongue on when I hear this at a funeral. Because it's so wrong. The idea behind this statement is to lessen the blow of death. Death comes to us all. If death is a natural part of life, it comes to everyone. You're supposed to feel less bad about it. Stop feeling bad about death. Everybody has to put up with it. That seems more insensitive to me than the truth. There are only two sure things in life, death and taxes. Therefore, every March, you should fill out your 1040 form with a giant smile on your face because it's just a part of living, right? It's just a part of life, so you should, you should enjoy it, right? But it's not true. I mean, taxes aside. Death is not a natural part of life. It's the opposite of true. Christians shouldn't shrug off death as, oh, you know, things happen. Christians should hate death, despise death. Your loved ones should not have died. They were not created for death, but for life. It is the consequence of sin that caused your loved one to die. And God Almighty will not stand for it. It is an outrage. It is an insult to God that a creature made in his image should have to suffer the indignity of death. And you better believe that God is going to make it right. The Bible doesn't make excuses for death, but it insults death. Death is a joke. Death is an enemy. It mocks death. The last enemy to be defeated is death, Scripture says. And yet death ultimately cannot hold your loved one any more than it could hold Christ in the grave. On Easter morning, Christ overcame death. He walked triumphantly out of the tomb, and all the clawing and grasping of the bony hands of death could do nothing to slow him down. So too with your loved ones. Nothing could stop him from rising from the grave, and nothing will stop your loved one. Likewise, Christ has defeated death for your child. The the grave cannot hold him, because God has already taken them into heaven. And on the last day, their body will leap forth from the tomb, perfected, and death will be regarded as a joke. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Where indeed? Death is an enemy, an enemy that will not win. Death has no stinger. That's what the verse means. Oh, death, where is your sting? Think of a wasp without a sting. As annoying as it could be, it can do nothing to hurt you. It's a lion without teeth. It bites at a Christian but can do no lasting harm. Christ has overcome death so that those who are buried with him in death, in death, in baptism, will be raised with him in a life like his. Death is not a natural part of life. It's an enemy that God has crushed with his victory and a joke. The third and most common funeral statement to be improved is this. This is not a funeral, it's a celebration of life. The positive intention for this statement is that the family wants to focus on the blessing of the life of the loved one, not the tragedy of their death. Now, it's absolutely true, it is absolutely true that we should thank God and celebrate the life of loved ones. God is the one who has given the the loved ones to us for however much time we were able to spend with them. The lives that they touched that they touched in a positive way, this is all something to thank God for, all something to celebrate. Thank God we can rejoice in the blessing of somebody's life. But that isn't the only thing that we should rejoice in. And that isn't the greatest thing that we should rejoice in. As much as we want to celebrate their life on earth, and it is a good thing to celebrate their life on earth, nothing can compare to the life they have in heaven now. If we focus too much on earthly life, we start to believe that the best years are behind us. That they live their best life now, and it's all over for them. And that's not true. By trying to avoid focusing on death, we actually give death the last word. And that's not God's plan at all. If we're celebrating life at a funeral, and we're only celebrating the life that came before the death, death has the last word. And that's not true. We thank God for their life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Death robbed us of more time with our loved one, but also God has given them new life where there is no more death. There is no more illness, no more sadness, no more sickness. Nothing can threaten them. If we want to celebrate life at a funeral, the best way to do that is to celebrate not just their life before death, but the eternal life that they have now. The eternal life that God has given to Christians that no one can take away. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the focus of the funeral, and his gifts and forgiveness to you and your loved one. You can grieve your loss while also rejoicing in their salvation. Remember, Jesus wept, and then he raised Lazarus from the dead. When Christ died on the cross, many people grieved. It was sad and terrible, a moment to see a perfect man die unjustly. Mary's heart was pierced through to see her son die on a cross for sins he never committed. In the Gospel reading for today, a widow is mourning the death of her only begotten son. In the Old Testament reading for today, a widow is mourning the death of her only begotten son. When Mary wept at the foot of the cross, a widow was mourning the death of her only begotten son. Mourning for death is right. Death is the enemy, and it is right to hate it every time death strikes a blow. But it is not the end of the story. The three widows rejoiced that their three sons were raised from the dead, the final one on Easter morning. This promise was given to you Christians that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too will your loved ones, will every Christian be, raised with imperishable bodies, not to die again, not to suffer again, but to live eternally. You are free to celebrate life because every moment we have with a loved one is a gift. It's something we don't deserve but something that God loves you enough to give. You are free to mourn death because you know that mourning will not last, that death will not last. You are free like the widow of Nain also to cease mourning because you know that the life of of a Christian never truly ends. And now the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.